Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. This morning, we'll begin our study over the next two, potentially three weeks, looking at the institution of the Lord's Supper. In Luke's Gospel, we have now arrived at the hour. Um, In chapter 22, it begins, and Luke is hastening the pace. It's good storytelling. Verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, so it's drawing near. Then in verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Verse 14, we'll begin this morning, when the hour came. It's drawing near. The day is here. Now the hour has come. And our Lord will celebrate the Passover One final time with his disciples before he goes to the cross to die. Let's begin by reading Luke 22, 14 to 23. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide them among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out For you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Lord God, as we study this rich passage and we look at the glories of your new covenant, promised so long ago that now we share in. Give us eyes to see the glories of your salvation, your promises that are precious and many. Help us to believe by faith they are ours in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You can keep your finger in Luke 22, but we will spend very little time there this morning. And one of the reasons why we're going to walk through this in at least two weeks is because a key phrase in verse chapter 20 demands a lot of our attention. In verse 20, we read, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And I am convinced that Jesus' disciples there in the upper room with him, when they heard that phrase, would have gotten excited All manner of Old Testament text would come to bear on that. And I am equally convinced that until we've studied this issue, what is the new covenant? What is the old covenant? And how does it relate to Passover? We're not really going to understand what our Lord is doing. So if we were to go through this verse by verse, we'd get through up to verse 20, and then we'd take a massive aside. So I figured we'd start with a massive aside. And the next week, with that information, go through the text So that said, I warn you, this will be a little unusual. We are going to go through large passages of the Old Testament. You can follow along. There's about three or four of them. You can listen, look them up later. Um, 
And I'd invite you now to turn to Exodus chapter 12. To Exodus chapter 12. Here's, here's the purpose of what we're going to do this morning. Jesus announces that his blood, his bloody death on the cross, is going to purchase, it's going to inaugurate, it's going to bring the new covenant. And what Jesus does with the Passover meal and re-signifying it and reshaping it is in the context of this new covenant. So what we're going to try to answer this morning in four points is, first we're going to look at Passover and its institution. We need to look at the thing that Jesus is altering, molding. Then we need to see the old covenant and its failure. And then we need to understand what is this new covenant that Jesus is speaking of. We'll look at it in those three points. First, the institution and observance of Passover. The institution and observance of Passover. Now, we read this passage last week, but I think it'd be worth it to look at it again. Now, this is God's initial command to the people. In Exodus 12, we see the first Passover. The one where they sacrifice the lamb, they eat in readiness and in haste, where God will deliver them from Egypt. And then all future Passover observances are molded on this pattern. So Exodus chapter 12, we'll just begin in the first verse. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and shall make account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. It shall take some of the blood and pour it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. It shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall, not, you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. And this man- Hello? Okay. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And jump a little further as Moses gives the instruction. Oh dear, we're having another more mic problems. Okay. The feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread are closely connected. Passover kicks off the week-long feast of unleavened bread. And Luke combines the two together as almost one observance. And so in verse 21 of Exodus 12, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. 
None of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. I'll pause there. So this is God's initial command for the people. And the instructions are pretty straightforward. We mentioned this last week, point one here. First, kill the lamb, apply the blood, and get inside. Kill the lamb, each family. They've had the lamb in their home for a few days now. Each family kills the lamb. They're too poor to afford a lamb. They can combine with other households, but there's no substitution. It must be a lamb without blemish, without spot. The lamb is killed. Then you apply the blood on the lentil of the door, and you hide inside. That's, that's the command for Passover in the initial instance. And also we noted that they are to eat in readiness and haste. They eat it in anticipation of the deliverance God will bring. He says, I want you to eat with your clothes on, your sandals on. The bread is not given a chance to rise. It's unleavened because at any moment, God will deliver you. God will redeem you and bring you out of Egypt. And then, Passover, we look at God's memorial purpose in Passover. God's memorial purpose in Passover. So, in the first instance, that was the command. In the repeated instances, it's very similar. And God gave this as a memorial, he tells us, for at least two reasons. The first reason why God wants Israel every year, all the men to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, is to commemorate God's mercy. To commemorate God's mercy. We we see that, look in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. Now God is going to see the blood, we see. When he sees the blood, he's going to respond. But the blood also functions as a sign for them. To signify something. For your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's a picture of God's wrath and judgment passing over. Mercy coming in. Look at verse 26 of chapter 12. More explicitly still, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. God's wrath passing over in mercy. And so year after year, Israel was to celebrate this meal in remembrance of God's great mercy, passing over judgment. Another reason to celebrate Passover is given in in verse 51 and more explicitly in, in Deuteronomy 16, and that is this, to commemorate God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Verse 51, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out, the land of Egypt by their hosts. And the concept is this, it is through the judgment of killing the firstborn son that Pharaoh finally releases the people. Through this act of judgment, which God passed over Israel on, the exodus was made possible. And so listen to the language of Deuteronomy 16 as it re-instructs the people to observe the Passover. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And more explicitly, Deuteronomy 16, 3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the blood of a f- bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. 
So there's two primary memorial functions in the Passover, to remember God's mercy in passing over in judgment and to commemorate God's deliverance from slavery. So as Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room preparing to celebrate the Passover, what they are preparing to do is memorialize, commemorate God's great mercy in passing over sin and judgment and God's deliverance from Egypt and the slavery. And the exodus from Egypt serves in the Old Testament as the primary picture of God's salvation, of mercy, giving room for wrath to pass over, and for God to deliver his people from slavery. So that's the institution and the observance of Passover. And what happens as Israel leaves Egypt is they make a beeline to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 24, just turn over a few pages, we see the covenant they enter into with God. Now, a covenant is not like a contract. Contracts can be entered and exited. Covenants, the reason you cut a covenant is, and blood is shed for a covenant is the picture is only death ends a covenant. And in the language very similar to what our Lord says in instituting the new covenant, we read in Exodus 24, verse 7, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So at Sinai, Israel enters into a covenant known later as the Mosaic Law. The covenant with God administered by Moses at Sinai. And they enter into this covenant with God. And this covenant... Second point, now turn over to Deuteronomy 28, is conditional. Mosaic covenant is conditional. And here's the point I want you to get. You enter into the covenant, but whether or not you receive blessings or curses is based upon your faithfulness to the covenant. Being a participant of the covenant of Moses does not guarantee blessings. You you can be a circumcised Israelite in the covenant of Moses and go straight to hell experiencing curses. In Deuteronomy 28, as Moses is about to go the way of all the earth and die, after laying out the covenant for them, Deuteronomy 28 makes it explicitly clear there's a blessing and there's a curse. I'm not going to read all of chapter 28, but we'll read a good chunk of it. I want you to see this. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If... You faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of the cattle and the increase of the herds of the young flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessings on you in your barn. And in all that you undertake, he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy for himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. 
and the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your livestock, and the fruit of the ground within the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land and its increase, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods and to serve them. Now, their God has laid out them abundant blessings. He would give Israel nationally, corporately, if they would but be faithful to this covenant. But then the rest of this chapter is given over to what will happen if they don't. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. you compare that with verse 2. You're either going to be overtaken with blessings. It's a wonderful picture, like a tidal wave coming behind you with blessings overtaking you, or the terrifying picture of curses overtaking you. Verse 16. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send you on you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And he goes on to list more and more and more of the cursings, but I want you to notice verse 32 and following. What will the culmination of these curses lead to? Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. While your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors. And you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils on which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring Bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone and shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So the Mosaic law is conditional. Tremendous, abundant blessings are promised if the people will be faithful. And extensive cursings. I promise if they are not. And ultimately those cursings will culminate in the deportation from the land. That God will kick them off this land, deliver them to the hand of another nation, scatter them among the nations. You keep reading in in chapter 28, um, verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Why? Because you did not obey the voice of God the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Then look at this terrifying verse 63. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, 
So the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. So there's, there's, there's the two paths. So you're brought into this covenant with Moses. Israel's brought into this covenant at Sinai. But just because you remember the covenant doesn't mean you're getting good things. Just because you're a partaker in the Mosaic covenant does not mean you'll receive a blessing and not a curse. It simply puts these standards on the table, these blessings and these curses, which is why in Israel's later history, when they are unfaithful, God refers to them as an adulterous, whoring wife. Someone who is united to him by covenant, but is breaking the covenant, is being unfaithful to the covenant. So the Mosaic covenant is conditional. Now turn a page more to verse chapter 30. What's striking to me is as much as Moses champions this covenant, it's a good covenant, the law is good. Moses acknowledges in Deuteronomy it will fail. Not because the covenant is, is wrong, but because the people are faithless. Look at how chapter 30, verse 1 comes, begins. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Moses is under no disillusionment. He is fully aware that this covenant will end in the scattering of the people, the deportation from the land. And he speaks of a latter day, you can keep reading, where he speaks of hope for them. But he, he knows how this will end. As we look at the institution and weakness of the old covenant, at Sinai, the people entered into a covenant with God. This covenant was conditional. And because the people were faithless, the people's faithless led to the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And now turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. So God makes a covenant. The Passover lamb is sacrificed People leave Egypt in a great deliverance. They go straightway to Sinai. They enter into a covenant with God. It's conditional. They fail to keep his conditions. And they receive all the curses laid out. They're, they're scattered from the land. And, and the prophet Jeremiah is sent with this message. Don't fight Nebuchadnezzar. God has given you into his hand. And he tells them why. Look at chapter 25. Begin in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people in Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 30th, 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord your God has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve or worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do to you no harm, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not... This is sounding familiar to Deuteronomy 28. Because you have not obeyed my words, 
Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding and the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So what they get told through Jeremiah is I'm going to keep my promise. I keep my word. We entered into a covenant and I told you what would happen if you were faithless and I gave you warnings and I sent you prophets and I called on you again and again to turn, to turn and live, to dwell in the land and you refuse and so I will summon Nebuchadnezzar and I will scatter you. people's faithlessness led to the Babylonian captivity. You see, the, the, the law had a built-in weakness to it. We'll look at that in a minute or two. The law had a built-in weakness. The people were unable to keep it, unwilling to keep it. And so it ends in what would appear to be failure, catastrophic failure, a disillusionment of the nation. But God gives a greater grace, which brings us now, point three, to the promise and superiority of the new covenant. Now stay in Jeremiah, just turn over to chapter 29. See, after Jeremiah has announced the firm, certain words, you will not succeed against Nebuchadnezzar. You will be taken captive. And as part of Jeremiah's message, there, there are false prophets who have been raised up prophesying peace, peace to the people. Nebuchadnezzar will go away. Jeremiah says, don't listen to him. I've given, him into your, I've given you into his hands. We're going to see its promise. But in the very face of captivity, as God, as God has Jeremiah announced the captivity, in that very announcement, God promises a future restoration. And this is a passage that many of you are familiar with. It goes on greeting cards and, and it goes on posters on the wall, usually taken radically out of context. But look at this, 29.10. For thus is the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And thus begins three or four chapters of future promised restoration, and the apex of that promise of restoration is the next point. In response to their failure, God promises grace. Turn now to Jeremiah 31. And there's just some wonderful passages in Jeremiah 31. I'll just, before we get to the new covenant, I just want you to see some of these. In case you think God's wrath is too severe, I also want you to see the greatness of his love. Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you again. I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Verse 13. Then shall your young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness and sorrow. I will feast their souls of the priests with abundance. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Now jump to verse 31. How is God going to do this? How is God going to restore his people, bring them back to the land? Will it be through the law of Moses and that covenant? We get this amazing announcement. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There's your link with Luke 22, 20. This is what Jesus is speaking of when he says, Behold the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. You see, the amazing announcement is that God was not done with Israel. He would regather them. He would restore them. But he would do it under the administration of a new covenant. And God said this through Jeremiah, and then there's no more words of this new covenant until Jesus announces hundreds of years later in an upper room, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You've got to understand that the law of Moses failed because the people failed, because it was weak, and it led to their cursing. And God says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to do good to you. I'm going to do it through a new covenant. And that new covenant promised so long before our Lord in the upper room on the night he was betrayed announces is what his blood is purchasing, what his blood is accomplishing. Turn to Jeremiah 32. He says a little more about this new covenant. Verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation. I'll bring them back to this place, and I'll make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is the nature of our God. Even as he announces judgment, even as he tells them the discipline is coming, the deportation is coming, the scattering is coming, he promises grace, he promises restoration, he promises a new covenant. People aren't repentant here. The people have not turned to him. It's simply the overflow of his mercy and goodness. And now... 
Final passage I'll ask you to turn to is Hebrews 8. I want to look at the superiority of the new covenant. You'll see in Hebrews 8, the author of Hebrews makes an extensive quotation of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, what we just read. But I'll, I'll let the author of Hebrews direct us at the significance of this new covenant in relationship to the old. It is superior. That, that is unmistakable. Pick it up in Hebrews 8, verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better. The covenant Jesus brings is better than the covenant Moses brought. Doesn't mean Moses' covenant is bad or evil or wicked. Just Jesus' new covenant is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so what we're looking at in this quotation is the superiority. He's going to define the new covenant in two ways. Negatively what it's not like and positively what it is like. And we're going to quickly get five superiorities of the new covenant. And he quotes Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. Declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And here we see the discontinuity, the differences. On the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll be merciful towards their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So God... Start from the very beginning where we're at. God redeems his people. He passes over judgment. He delivers them. He brings them to Sinai. He enters into a covenant. He lays out the blessings. He lays out the curse. They limp along for a while. Under David, at times, it seems to be going okay. But by and large, the people just fail. And ultimately, it ends in catastrophic failure on their part in the deportation of Babylon. And God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I will make a new covenant with you. I will redeem you. I will remember you. I will bring you back. And then he goes on to describe this covenant is different than the one he made at Sinai. So here's its superiority. The first point to note is this. In the new covenant, God will cause us to persevere in it. It's the first difference, right? Not like the covenant they made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Think of it. What happened To all of that generation who entered into a covenant with God at Sinai, apart from Caleb and Joshua, what happened to them all? They died in the wilderness. Why? Because they rebelled against God at Kadesh Barnea, and they walked around for 30 years until every last one of them was dead. And their children entered the land. I mean, that's just stunning. They enter into a covenant with God and immediately fail. Except for Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses doesn't enter the land. They didn't continue in the covenant. 
And consequently, God showed no concern for them. And he says, that's not then like this new covenant that I'm bringing. I'm not going to have, God says, people who enter my new covenant and then fail to persevere in it. We get our doctrine of eternal security from this. Once saved, always saved. But precisely because God says, unlike the old covenant, I will not allow you to fall away from it. Remember what we read in Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 41? They shall be my people. I'll be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of the children after them. I'll make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Listen to this. And I will put the fear of me into their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is the amazing statement. We looked at the conditionality of the Mosaic Covenant. And it's not that, in contrast, the New Covenant is unconditional. There's a condition to the New Covenant. You must believe. You must keep on believing. But it's that God says part of the New Covenant is God's promise that he will perform in us the condition of the new covenant. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put a new spirit in you and I will cause you not to turn from me. So the new covenant says you must repent and believe. You must trust in Christ and you must continue trusting in him. You must overcome the world for we have become partakers in Christ. Hebrews 3.12 says, if we hold fast our confidence firm to the end and God says, I will make sure they do that. We sing about, he will hold me fast. That's the promise of the new covenant. The new covenant promises that Jesus, by virtue of his death on the cross, has bought your and my perseverance. Let me read briefly John Piper writing on this. Um, Jesus bought your endurance. And he quotes Luke twenty two twenty. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What that means is that the new covenant promised most explicitly in Jeremiah 31 and 32 was secured and sealed by the blood of Jesus, right? So Jesus purchases, secures, and seals the new covenant with his blood. The new covenant comes true for God's people who trust in the Messiah, Jesus, because Jesus died to establish it. And what does the new covenant secure for all us who belong in Christ? And one of the things the new covenant secures for us is perseverance in faith to the end. Then he quotes Jeremiah 32, 40. I'll make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And Piper goes on to say the everlasting covenant, the new covenant, includes the unbreakable promise. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. They may not. They will not. Christ sealed this covenant with his blood. He purchased your perseverance. If you are in Christ Jesus through faith, if you are persevering in faith today, you owe it to the blood of Jesus, to the Holy Spirit who is working in you to preserve your faith in honoring the purchase of Jesus. God the Spirit works in us what God the Son obtained for us. The Father planned it. Jesus bought it. The Spirit applies it, all of them infallibly. God is totally committed to the perseverance and eternal security of his blood-bought children. This is the first way that the new covenant is not like the old covenant. I make a new covenant, God says, not like the old one. They didn't continue in the old one, so I let them die in the wilderness. I'm not going to let that happen here. There are no people who enter the new covenant and then exit the new covenant. 
There are no people who are in the new covenant who perish. God himself will cause us to fear him and walk in his covenant. Jesus disciplines the sheep that go astray. He leaves the 99. He goes and finds them and he brings them back. The new covenant is superior precisely because God will cause us to persevere in it. Secondly, we see in Hebrews 8, as it cites Jeremiah 31, it's superior because God's law will be written on our hearts and minds. See, one of the ways you can think of the law of Moses is as an exoskeleton. The law written on stone tablets is outside of the people. An exoskeleton, like a beetle. And what the new covenant brings is an endoskeleton, an internalization of God's law. Not just that we know it, but that we will want to do it. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 7, the, the problem of seeing God's law externally, and yet finding nothing within me that loves it, that wants to accomplish it, that wants to do it. In the new covenant, God promises through his new heart, through regeneration, through giving us his spirit, that he writes his law in our hearts and our minds. And so now we agree inwardly. We desire inwardly with God's law. It's superior in that way. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. What else? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And, each, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So God will cause us to persevere in the new covenant. In the new covenant, God's law is written on our hearts and minds. Third, in the new covenant, each one of us will know God personally. You hear people talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. What they mean is without mediation. It's not that you have fellowship with the church and the church has fellowship with Jesus. You will know God. If you're a member of the new covenant, you know God. You know, some of the disagreements between covenantal theologians and and us over the role of children, are they in the covenant, are they out of the covenant, do we treat them as covenant members? I'll give you a simple test. If you, like me, endeavor to teach your children who God is that they might know him, by that act, you're admitting they're not part of the covenant. If you're part of the covenant, you know God. That's what it says. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest. If you're a participant of the new covenant, by definition, you know God. You think about Israel and how they could only approach so far, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women and the children, the court of the adults, where the priest could serve in the holy place, and the high priest once a year going into the holy of holies, and Jesus goes in, tears the tears the curtain in two and bids us enter in and we like the sinful woman who wept at Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair have intimate access and relationship to God. That is better. That is so much better. We have a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. We may draw near because we know God and are known by God into the new covenant. Fourthly, In the new covenant, God will be merciful and forgive our sins. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The law of Moses, we know that the the blood of goats and bulls, not boats, 
the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. The blood of this lamb can. Special music. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that cleans me white as snow. This Passover lamb can fully deal with sin. The author of Hebrews then goes on to make one more inspired comment in verse 13, not included in Jeremiah 31, and that is this. This new covenant makes the first one obsolete. This new covenant makes the first one obsolete. And speaking of a new covenant, it makes the first one obsolete. And the point is simply this. By announcing in Jeremiah a new covenant, it's in principle an admission that the old covenant isn't going to get us all the way there. It's got limitations. It's got weakness. One of the reasons we're not under the law of Moses, obligated to keep the law of Moses, is because under the new covenant, it supersedes and makes obsolete the old covenant. So that's the long aside. You can be thankful we didn't do that next week, but I want to now try to bring it to a close of a point. So think about it. Jesus is in the upper room, and he announces to his disciples as he celebrates the Passover the cup in the Passover with wine in it is the cup of the new covenant. And all these promises and all these superiorities will come to their mind. It's finally here. Jeremiah prophesied it. Jeremiah promised it. It's here. God causing us to persevere. God's law written on our hearts. The promise to know God personally. A full pardon and forgiveness of sin. Which makes me ask the question, then what does that have to do with Passover? Jesus is bringing a new covenant. He could have picked any number of Old Testament observances to, to which to tie it. He, he, could, he could connect it to the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths where you'd go out, you'd make a tent, and you'd live outside of your house to remember that you were strangers and wanderers. He could, he could have linked it to that. After all, Jesus came and pitched his tent with us. That's what John 1 says. He doesn't pick the Feast of Booths. Feast of Weeks? No. He picks Passover. Why, why, why Passover? I want to make a suggestion to you, a couple reasons why Jesus picks Passover as the sign of his new covenant. The first, and we learned this through reading the rest of the New Testament, that ultimately the new covenant, and you can, I'll write down the reference, Galatians 3, 15 to 24. We don't have time to go there, but Galatians 3, 15 to 24. The Apostle Paul argues that the real new covenant is in reality the fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham. You remember? The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The apostle Paul argues the promise seed is Christ. And so one of the significances of grabbing Passover is it's before the giving of the law. If this new covenant supersedes the law, it's helpful to grab a sign that exists before the law. Second, because the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old covenant, not the old covenant with Moses, but with Abraham, how does Exodus begin its story of God's deliverance? Listen to this. Why did God deliver his people from Egypt? 
What was the reason given? Listen to Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Moses, in writing Exodus, wants us to understand that this deliverance that God is going to work for Israel is in fulfillment to his promises to Abraham. So God reveals himself at the burning bush to Moses. Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? Say that I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He links it again to that covenant, to that promise. And so Jesus, in choosing a sign for his new covenant, which is really the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, picks God's great saving work done in the first instance. All through the Old Testament, you'll hear about God remembering his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first instance that I found of that phrase is Exodus 2, 23 to 25. So as you're reading your Bible from left to right, what's the first place where God acts in remembrance of his covenant? He, he delivers the people from Egypt. How does he deliver the people through Egypt? Through the plagues. What was the ultimate plague that led to their release? The death of the firstborn, where God passes over judgment on his people and delivers them from slavery so the Passover makes perfect sense as a sign. And I think the final reason for Passover is this. What better signifies and pictures how we have been redeemed, how God has delivered us. In the Passover, the people are almost entirely passive. They have to kill the lamb. They have to apply the blood. But then what do they do? They just get inside and hide. The lamb of God was slain for us. The apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. God killed him. And through faith, his blood is applied to you. And then the entire council of the rest of the New Testament is abide in him. Stay inside. So Jesus takes this meal, which is a commemoration of God's mercy over sin, God's deliverance from slavery. And even though God's wrath would not pass over him in but a few hours on the cross, takes this sign and he announces amazingly that through his death on the cross, through the salvation he would work, the new covenant would be brought to bear on God's people. And so now this meal that we celebrate, and we'll celebrate it next week, has a new significance. Ultimately and fully, God's wrath passed over us through the blood of Jesus on the cross. All of our hopes, all of our confidence is in this new covenant bought by the blood of Christ. That is the significance. We're just looking at one phrase when Jesus says the new covenant, but you got to understand the Old Testament history. You've got to understand its place. What marvelous riches we have received. This is a covenant where God himself performs its conditions. God himself works faith in us. That's why we call faith a gift of God. God purchased your and my faith on the cross. He purchased our perseverance on the cross. He will perform in us what he requires of us. To God be the glory. And we've gone late, but we've got to sing our last song. We've got to sing Amazing Grace. So please stand as we perform, as we sing Amazing. It's not, it's not just, it's not, not pretty neat grace. It's Amazing Grace.
How sweet the sound.